you would, please take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of 2 Timothy. There we resume our study this morning. Last week, we began by looking at the introduction to this letter, looking at the first couple verses laying the foundation to the letter that is to come after that introduction. As we know that Paul often does, he gives you themes and, and perhaps a bit of foreshadowing in terms of what is to follow when he writes an introduction uh, to be fair, it is an introduction. He is introducing himself, telling you who wrote the letter, to whom the letter is written, and some aspects um, that he wants to go with the letter, usually that are spiritual in nature. But so very often when you read through those aspects and themes, they, they come to life in the body of the letter itself. And that's, that's true here of Second Timothy. It was true in First Timothy. So this morning, as we have transitioned away from the introduction, and he's getting into the body of the letter. What Paul is doing is beginning to lay the foundation of reminding Timothy. Now, remember, you see over and over and over in First Timothy, I charge you, I command you, I urge you uh, to, to be faithful to the charge that you were given. And so, where does he begin in this second letter to Timothy? To begin by reminding him, what has been entrusted to you, Timothy? What have you been given that you need to now labor uh, under or to labor with this gift. And that's exactly what he's reminding Timothy and us here. And so it's this notion, Timothy had a work to do within the church of God, but God had given him the tools that he needs. Now, why is that important for you and for me? It's that reminder that we are called as Christians, as believers, to not be on the sidelines watching. We're not merely consumers. We're not spectators. We are called to get into the game, as it were. And lest we fear that we have nothing to offer, I would like to remind us today that every person who calls Christ Lord in this room or within the sound of my voice has something to offer in the body of Christ, something to offer, some gift to exercise in the body of Christ. And remember, are some gifts more public than others? Sure. But does that mean that the less public gifts are less valuable? Absolutely not. We need all of it or else the sovereign king of heaven wouldn't have delineated out different gifts for people to exercise in the service of one another. And so today, we're kind of continuing to look at this letter to Timothy. As I told you last week, this is Paul's last letter that he wrote before he left this earth. Galatians was his first letter. Second Timothy is his last. And so this reads very much of like a letter that says, I'm departing soon, Probably there's so much more I would love to have taught you. But as it stands, these are my last thoughts to you as you go forward in my absence. As parents who's ever kind of as we're sending our children off, as our children grow into the adulthood and we send them off, we can relate, can't we? Can you think of some times when I know when we dropped our daughter off at college, I wrote her a letter, and one of the things I told her is, there's so much more I wanted to tell and teach you. And that's kind of what Paul is doing here to some degree. So without further delay, let us turn our attention now to the Word of God. This morning we're looking at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 to 7. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible and errant Word. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, 
a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So ends the reading of God's Word. May He add His blessing. Please pray with me. Father, thank You. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You even for the words we just sang a moment ago, that You are our living hope, that we can praise the Lord because we have been set free because of Christ. Now, Lord, use this time in Your Word to reach our hearts, to transform our thinking that we might live more in the imitation of Your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's through His glorious name we pray. Amen. When we think about gifts within the church, of course, we need to remember that God gives His people many gifts, and they're in various forms. Many gifts in various forms. So we're not all gifted to be one thing or another. We all have different gifts. Now, obviously, we know from Scripture and we know from experience there are spiritual gifts. God gives people different spiritual gifts to exercise in His church for the good of His people, for the advancement of the gospel, for the proclamation of the gospel, so that we can proclaim and live out His message. That's the, the goal of spiritual gifts. When we think about things like faith and grace, mercy, Ephesians 2 even says, our good works, all those are the gift of God. Faith is a gift. Grace is a gift. Mercy is a gift. The good works reserved for us to do in the kingdom of God are His gift. Those are gifts of God to us for our growth, for God's glory. But I want to tell you this morning, those are rich and beautiful. One of the richest gifts that God gives us as people don't ever look past this, is the gift of godly influence. When I, you know, Rachel, my wife, her parents are wonderful people. Joe and Kathy are godly people who've been married now for more than 50 years, and they set a tone in their house for Rachel and her two sisters growing up that Christ is king and Christ is first, and they never wavered from that. And Rachel and her sisters are the fruit of that. And when you think about the gift of godly influence, beloved of God, it cannot be overestimated what it does. When we think about the gift of godly influence, strong believers embodying godliness in our lives, we need to understand that that is a gift from God. Now, it doesn't mean those people are always perfect, they always get it right, they always make the right decision. Yes, people are people, and people do boneheaded things. People make the wrong decision. But as a general rule, those who are godly, that is a gift to those who are in their lives. Strong believers embodying godliness is a lavish gift of God. And when we think about that, that's not by coincidence. That doesn't just happen. That doesn't just materialize one day out of nothing. It's not created ex nihilo. God specifically and personally places those people there for our growth in righteousness and holiness. Some people didn't have the best examples at home, and they have come to the Lord in spite of what they saw modeled before them. 
God be praised for them, but I guarantee you, most of the people I know who fit that description have spent their lives wanting to serve the Lord and be the godly influence for other people that they didn't have. And God be praised for them too. This is the beauty of how, how, how the kingdom of God works. When we come to 2 Timothy, especially this next section that we just read a moment ago, Paul acknowledges some truths for and about his young protege. When we look at Timothy, what was he? Well, at the very least, he was the beneficiary of godly influence. We read that there just in in, in verse 5, and we'll come back to that here in just a moment. He had a, a, a mother. He had a grandmother. He had the apostle Paul that God had placed in his life. Did Timothy have purpose from his youngest years? Yes, he did. How do we know? Because his grandmother was a woman of faith who instilled it in his mom, who instilled it in Timothy. And by the time that Paul sees Timothy, when we read about it in Acts, he sees a man who is recognized for his godly testimony. Now, is that simply, is, that, is the formula this, well, because he had that, Timothy turned out that way? No, 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 no. That was a gift. That was helpful. Timothy had to respond to the message. But may we not underestimate the beauty of what Paul acknowledges here. These principles of of truth were displayed for Timothy, and they were worked into his life. And the result of that was a man of genuine faith. A man of genuine faith, that's what Paul says. And Paul says, okay, Timothy, I want to take you one step further. Since I concede, since I acknowledge, recognize You are a man of sincere faith. That's the phrase Paul uses. You have gifts, and I want you to fan those gifts into flame. You have a responsibility. You have a calling. You have an obligation to serve in the kingdom of God. And this is not unique just to Timothy, but we'll come back around to that in just a moment. Because this gets to the heart of, of what it means to be people of the faith, which is what we are if we're in Christ. We are people of the faith. This gets to the heart of it. God gifts us for usefulness in His kingdom. And there's no stage of life where we can't be useful. Someone might say, well, Brad, what about the homebound? How can they be useful in the kingdom of God? As long as they have the mental capacity, they can pray. That's not an add-on in the Christian life. We're going to come around to prayer this morning. But being people of prayer is a vital ministry in the kingdom of God. But God gifts us. Let's just get the premise out there. God gifts us for usefulness in His kingdom. And so, with both gifts and works in God's economy, there's always going to be a divine and a human component to this. The gifts and works flow from God because they originate in God. God is the giver of those things. But we do exercise those gifts and works, and through the use of them, what happens? We grow in our ability and usefulness. We learn. Just because God gifts us doesn't mean we can't hone that gift. I mean, I'm telling you, someone who's gifted in evangelism, I promise you, 20 years after doing it, they're going to be a better evangelist than they were 20 years ago. Because practice does help to perfect the gift, to develop the gift. And so God plants these gifts in us 
and they grow by how we use them. And here's the battle that I think that as a pastor I've come across most. The battle is when trying to help people fan their gifts into flame, encourage them to use their gift, and so often I hear, I just don't feel worthy. I mean, who am I? Well, I promise you, I understand. I get it. But the, the point is not whether or not we feel worthy. It's what has God gifted us to do, and how are we using that gift in His kingdom to be of use to Him and the proclamation, proclamation of the message of the gospel? So when we think about it, God, or the gifts of works, are, are the seeds of God that He plants in us, and we work with Him to cultivate them for our growth and for the growth of our neighbor and for God's glory. It's all of the Lord, right? It's all of the Lord, but we have to have some skin in the game. We have to participate. We can't just sit idly by. And so we acknowledge that the gifts come from God, and we use those gifts to the glory of God and the strength of God to deliver the message of God so that people will come to God and the cycle starts over. And so with those thoughts in mind, there's an idea I want for us to see this morning. It's this, that faith and gifts are God's works that we cultivate. That faith, that faith and gifts are God's works that we cultivate. When we think about this, as, as we've just read this brief paragraph, what we're looking at here is beginning some affections, some affections expressed by Paul that are vital in Christian community. And then he hones in on faith and works, or, or faith and gifts, rather. Uh, the, the faith that we possess and the faith that Timothy possessed personally, but then how does that affect the use of the gifts that we have in Christ? Or what is, what is the role of being rooted in the faith and our gifts? So the, Paul kind of it gets at that. And so when we think about this, God gives His people faith, gifts, and brotherly affections. Those all come from God. Your view and my view of love has been radically transformed by the gospel because God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, that is in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. That type of radical, sacrificial love can only bring transformation. If that is not transforming a person, they haven't encountered it. And so we begin to understand love and sacrifice and even affection through the lens of the gospel. Because when we think about faith, gifts, and brotherly love, brotherly affections, it is the ripple of gospel truth because the gospel transforms everything. Mindset, heart, community, communion, capacities for love and sacrifice, desire to love and sacrifice. You know, I know Elton John is no Christian stalwart, but he does sing a song. One of the songs that one of the refrains running through that song is, it's no sacrifice, it's no sacrifice, it's no sacrifice at all. And if a worldly person can speak of care and compassion and love in that sense, how much more the Christian when we understand that, yes, obviously there is a sacrifice involved, but when my love supersedes my own uh, sense of convenience and comfort, it becomes a radical love that is informed by Christian truth. That now I'm not just operating on a tit-for-tat or a give-and-take. 
I'm just giving because that's what Christ has done for me. The gospel does this. Well, when we look at this paragraph, really it kind of breaks down into two little sections. In the Greek Testament, 3 through 5, verses 3, 4, and 5, uh, three, four, and five are really one sentence. That's one sentence in the, in the Greek Testament. The ESV breaks it up into separate sentences for readability. But what it's getting at is it's getting at really is the ripple effect of gospel grace. The gospel grace does change how we live our lives. It does change how we relate to one another. These are not novel ideas. We've looked at this several times now in Timothy. But when we look at this, this is what to me is, is truly humbling, perhaps. It's, it's enlightening because it's so easy to read over verse 3 because you've probably read this book before. And it's real easy to look at verse 3 and say, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers day and night. But when we, look at, when we look at that sentence, do you know what should leap off the page to us? That Paul takes time in the beginning of this letter to respond to God with a deep sense of gratitude for Timothy. This was not God heal Timothy, God help his grandmom, God help him get that promotion. God, and, and those are not bad prayers. But he begins this letter thanking God Thank you for my friend Timothy. Thank you for this brother who is dear to me. So when we understand how did Paul view Timothy, Paul saw Timothy as a gift from God. Was he a, a disciple? Yes, Paul, had, Paul, he was a disciple of Paul's. But we need to understand this was not just a disciple-disciple-y relationship, a mentor-mentoree relationship. They were friends. The gospel had created a godly, God-centered friendship between these two men. And so when Paul thinks of Timothy, his first thought is gratitude to God for gifting him Timothy. Timothy is a gift to Paul. And when we think about this, you know what Paul doesn't do? He doesn't thank Timothy for being Timothy. He doesn't do that. He thanks God for Timothy. Because what he sees in Timothy, this young man, with whom he, who, who he, he really loves, he sees God at work in him. And he takes time to let Timothy know, I thank God for you. Do you do that in your lives for people? Do you ever pause with no, with no other motive than just because you really are thankful for a brother or sister and just say, man, I thank God for you? Because there's an application here that I think we need to chew on a little bit that gospel friendships are vital for our growth. These friendships are not trivial. They're not happenstance. They don't just appear. They don't just pop up. God places them there. God puts Christian people in our lives to develop friendships and to cultivate relationships with for our growth. Beloved, because why does God do it this way? Because God is a covenant God. God's means of relating to His people is covenantal. What most natural way for a human relationship to be in the imitation of God, to have these relationships that are not trivial, that are not minor, that are not take it or leave it, that are built on the idea that we are in covenant together as a family of Christ, we live indebted to the promise of Christ, and that promise drives how we treat each other, how we love each other. What people in your life are you grateful for? What gospel friendships do you look at and just really think, man, my life wouldn't be the same without this relationship? K. 
Can you think of one or two? Have you told them that? It's not about the telling. It's about reminding people, I thank God for you. You are a vital part in my life. Paul is taking the apostle, the apostle who arguably may be the most well-known apostle. Timothy, you wouldn't know of if you didn't know who Paul was. And yet, in all the pages of Scripture, we see Paul speak with more affection about Timothy than anybody else. And he pauses to say, Timothy, I thank God whom I serve for you as I remember you constantly in my prayers. Beloved, here's what I'd say to this. You've heard me say it before. We should have Pauls in our lives. We should also have Timothys. We should be Pauls and we should be Timothys. We should be those type of people because discipleship is so important. So is friendship. You don't have to enter into every relationship thinking, how can I disciple you and how can you disciple me? It'll happen. But we do need to enter relationships thinking, how can I be a blessing to you? How can I serve you? And God willing, they reciprocate and they say, how can I be a blessing to you? And you begin to share it. Something beautiful happens when that happens. We begin to understand the intimacy that the gospel brings us. I thank God whom I serve. That little word, I serve or serve, in Greek is a dual word. It often means worship. It often means serve. And in most cases, there's a bit of both of that nuance there. And I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that it is here, especially since because Paul makes mention of ancestors with a clear conscience, and he connects it with prayer. So Paul's just not talking about some sort of uh, doulos, a, a bond servant type service. Uh, the word here does imply like service at the altar, service of the king, service and worship. Paul is talking about this God whom he both worships and serves. And by mentioning his ancestors here, he's doing something very important for us. He's talking about the God of the Old Testament. How did his ancestors, or at least his current day uh, brothers, get it wrong? They missed who Jesus was. Jesus came as Yahweh incarnate, Yahweh in the flesh, Yahweh embodied. And Paul's contemporaries missed this. But that doesn't do damage to who the God of the Old Testament is. His contemporaries are missing the most important part of the story, and yet the God of the Old Testament is Yahweh. He's the God whom Paul serves. I actually serve Yahweh, Paul is saying, with a clear conscience. I serve the same God as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and so forth and so on. That God who we read about, he says, is the God that I serve with my ancestors. Paul's contemporaries, which is really not his point here, but it's, it's worth noting, had missed it because they denied Christ as Yahweh in the flesh. But Paul says, the straying of men does not do damage to the character and identity of God, which is why he says, my conscience is clear. I serve the true God, even in my service to Christ. He's making a theological statement in that moment, a, a theology of Christ as the embodiment of the true and living God. As I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, 
This is the first of three remembrances that Paul will mention here in these, in these three verses. This is the first. He's talking to Timothy. So he already says, I have gratitude to God. I thank God for you. Why is Timothy constantly on his mind? Well, because he's constantly praying for Timothy. He's praying for this young pastor. He knows the obstacles that Timothy faces. He knows the burdens of pastoral ministry. He knows the burdens of taking leadership and authority in a local assembly. And so, yes, it should not be lost on us that Paul says, I pray for you constantly. I know what you're up against. I know the wolves you're having to face. Because remember, he told the Ephesian church specifically, wolves are going to come. They're going to come to pick off the sheep. And so he understands the job, the task that Timothy has before him. So he says, I pray for you. He is faithful to consistently pray. What is he doing? Well, his, one of the greatest gifts he gives to Timothy besides these letters is that he keeps this young pastor before the Lord. He's constantly putting this young man before the Lord. Strength. God, help him use his gifts. Help him not to give in to timidity. Don't let his physical ailments be a detriment to him. Help him rise above all these things and to labor well. And so he's asking God to be with Timothy. So here's what he's done. I thank God for Timothy. He, so we, we, we know that He's already called Timothy, in verse 2, my beloved child. Now he says, I thank God for him. What is the application here? We should be praying for people that we love. It's just that simple, really. It's not, it's not hugely profound, but it's important. We should be praying for the people in our lives that we love. If we love someone, that should translate to an active prayer life. And as I was studying this week, I was supremely convicted over this point because as I was thinking about challenging this body, I thought, well, how faithful am I in that? That when I love somebody, how often am I praying? I mean, I pray for people all the time. But Paul says constantly, night and day, I'm praying for you. It's driven by his sense of only God can meet the needs that Timothy has, but because he loves this young man, he's praying for him. People in our lives that we love, we need to be praying for. If there's people in your life that you need God to see, or you need to see God bless and, and grow and mature, to deliver, to strengthen, pray for them. I'm like you probably, and it's, I'm, I'm a product of the South. When tragedy strikes, often I will say, I know I can pray for you, but is there anything practical I can do? And I stand convicted this morning because <laughs> prayer is about the most practical thing you can do for somebody. But it's a human thing because so often we feel like we, we just want to do something. We want to do something quantifiable so that they really feel served, and so often there's not anything you can do. I have walked with people through many deaths, when we were in Keystone Heights, when Rachel and I first got there, it seemed like every time I turned around, we were doing funeral for elderly, for young, for, tra for tragedy, for other things. And I've walked with people who've, who've buried children and, and who've buried their grandparents. And I'm telling you, what I've learned in almost 22 years of doing it, there's nothing that you can physically do, but your prayers mean more than you know. You don't have to have that slick word. You don't have to have that, that nice proverb or saying. You just assure people, I am praying with and for you. 
Beloved, we pray. We pray for people that we love. We pray for people that we love. So Paul says, I pray for you night and day. But then he continues, literally, remembering your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. So what is, he remembers Timothy in prayer. Now he is saying he remembers Timothy's tears. He's longing for this reunion. And again, what do you see? You see affection, you see love. Now you see a man who's on death row, so to speak. We'll just use American terminology and apply it back to, to Roman politics. You see this man who's on death row. He's, he's awaiting execution. And what does he tell Timothy? I'm longing to be reunited with you. I desire your company. And so, when we think in in the Christian life, when we want to be with people maybe who might be struggling or in need, what is it that they need really from us? Well, one, they need our prayers. And if we're going to do it in peace, presence. It it doesn't have to be the right thing to say, but just being present. Timothy, I want to see you. Your presence would be a gift to me. Now, when Paul says, I remember your tears, we have no idea what the context of that is. None. We could speculate as to what it was, but that's really not the point. Trying to discern what the context is of the tears is is immaterial. What we do glean from that, and what I do think we're supposed to take for that, is how it goes to show how real the relationship actually was. That when they parted, Timothy may have presumed, I will never see you again, which was very realistic in the ancient world, and have wept over it. Either way, we don't know why, but we can see the heart of it, that there was real relationship. In other words, there wasn't this fake intimacy. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. There's none of that. That was my southern drawl coming out for you. (laughs) Southeast Alabama, I grew up there. Um, And that's how you do it. You're not going to, if someone says, hey, how you doing? It's like, terrible, I'm depressed. I mean, nobody wants to be that guy, and you know that when people hear that, they go, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, because human nature is like, man, my burdens are hard enough. I don't know if I can handle yours. Uh, to that question, we can, actually, we can. But this is a real relationship where they shared their lives together. There was real intimacy. There was no... There was no foe, how are you doing? I'm great when I'm not. It was real. And so Paul says, I desire your company because we have a real relationship. And I want you to catch this because this is important. This is really good. He says, as I remember your tears, I long to see you. Why? That, this is a causal statement, that I might be caused to be filled with joy. That's powerful, beloved. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, how many of you struggle to have joy? You think it's just so out of reach. You feel like you're in the doldrums. You're constantly, you know, if not clinically depressed, you feel the weight of being feeling depressed, and you just feel like joy is an unreachable goal. We've all been there, I would imagine. I certainly have. And Paul says that if I see you, I will be filled with joy. That will do, give me great joy. So he's talked about now, he has gratitude for Timothy. Timothy causes him to be grateful to God. And now he's telling us that a reunion with Timothy would be a source of joy to him. 
Can we see the depth and richness of this relationship? That relationships in the kingdom of God, Christian community, should be a source of joy to us. We should be the type of friends who are a joy to others, who bring joy to others. Now, I'm not trying to put more pressure on you than is due. So don't leave here thinking, well, man, I got to be a joy to everybody I meet or I'm a failure. Um, Our goal should be encouragement should be to be a joy to other people. We're not always going to do that perfectly. We're human beings. We fall. And yet, are we living, seeking to be a joy to those in our lives? Timothy helped Paul experience joy and gratitude, and that is what a proper friendship should do. That's exactly how friendship should work. So this, in this way, we need to seek out good friends. Yes, We need to seek to be good friends, yes, so that we might help one another experience joy and gratitude. And we're not doing it for the accolades. I'm not saying be a good friend so you you hope, well, I hope my friend is thanking God for me this morning. I mean, that would be an awfully selfish motivation for friendship. That should never enter our minds. We should be friends in such a way that we will never know that our friend is saying, God, thank you for so-and-so. They have been such a good friend to me that they really are the lifter of my head, that when I am down and depressed and in the doldrums, this faithful brother or sister has a way to help me remember I'm not alone and that I have real reasons to be grateful. That's not the purpose of 2 Timothy, but boy, can we see that working in Paul's description of Timothy here. And it's encouraging. He, he says, I remember your tear, or I remember you in prayer. I remember your tears. And I want to see you that I may be filled with joy. And then he says, in remembrance of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So he remembers Timothy's sincere faith. Timothy had genuinely believed the gospel. He says, when I was around you, I saw your faith on display. It was sincere. He had believed in the truths that his mother and his grandmother had poured into him. He had a good testimony among his brothers. They spoke well of him so that Paul took notice of him. Beloved, we cannot discount the joy of familial faithfulness. Every parent I've ever met feels like a failure sometimes, and sometimes we do. We blow it with our kids. But here's what I'll tell you. Despite the ways in which we blow it from time to time, and we do, having a family where faith is central, God is king, and even in our mess-ups, we come back to hope and repentance and the gospel. I'm telling you, parents of young and old, there is no greater gift you can give your child than that. That is one of the richest gifts we give children. And we won't do it perfectly. God knows I haven't. Failed many times in many ways. But a house of faith is of benefit to children. Here's what I'll tell you on the flip side of that. Faithful parents, we don't get a certificate of guarantee if we honor God in our house that our children are going to turn out the way we want them to. Because at some point, children become, become responsible for their own faith, and they make their own decisions, and it is possible for them to drift. However, 
being a household of faith where God is extolled, where Scripture is upheld, however imperfectly, is a much better starting point than not having that. And so despite the fact that we don't do everything right, let us strive to be parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters and cousins who advocate the importance of the centrality of Christ. Because that has a lasting effect on the minds and psyches of children that we just really cannot fathom. But at the end of the day, we have to entrust them to the Lord and trust that the Spirit will do His work. Paul rounds out this paragraph for this reason, he says in verse 6, I remind you to fan into flame the gift which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and of self-control. So, we see this, so we've seen the gospel grace, verses 3 to 5. We now we see this gospel gift. And so we all have a gift for kingdom work, and it is from God. We all have gifts and abilities that are from God. It's interesting here what Paul does, verse 6. He's reminding Timothy to fan into flame. Literally, that word there is rekindle. I'm glad that the ESV chose fan into flame because it gets to the very heart. It gets more to the heart of what Paul is trying to say. Paul is telling Timothy, you have this gift. You have this gift for kingdom work. And he, he reminds that it was done through the laying on of hands. I won't turn there now, but back in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, Paul had talked about the gift of ministry through prophecy, through the laying on of hands. He doesn't tell us what the gift is there. He doesn't tell us what the gift is here. It is my assumption, I, I think, that it is a gift for preaching and pastoring, since that's what Timothy was charged with doing. That makes the most sense to me. But whatever the gift is, Paul says Timothy has it. And by telling him to fan it into flame, here's what we don't mean, or here's what Paul doesn't mean by that. He's not saying that your gift has gone out and you need to rekindle it. He's not saying you've somehow let, let, let the, the light, the candle go out and you need to relight it. He's saying you have this gift in you. Fan it into flame. So the question remains, how does he fan his gift into flame or how do we fan ours into flame? The answer is very simple. We use it. We use it. We constantly use the gifts that God has given us to fan them into flame for usefulness in God's economy, in God's kingdom. And so in this way, we see this, the, the, the tension that runs throughout the Bible, God's sovereignty, human responsibility. God gives the gift, sovereign, we cultivate said gift, responsibility. So we have a responsibility to use the gifts that God gives us to fan them in the flame, as it were, but we understand that those gifts, they come from God. What Paul did not tell us in 1 Timothy 4.14, he said there, the general, through the laying on of the hands. Here, he says, laying on of my hands. As I said there, so I think here, that was Timothy's ordination service, setting him apart for gospel ministry in, in Ephesus and beyond. But Paul is now saying, I was a part of that. So uh, we get more intimacy from the Apostle Paul that he personally participated in Timothy's ordination service. That he was there adding his amen to this brother with his hand on him as they set Timothy apart for ministry. Again, we understand this gospel community and the support that we give one another. Paul was intimately involved 
in Timothy's life. He's not speaking to Timothy from afar. I mean, he is physically, but he's speaking to a man he knows, a man he loves, a man he's shepherded, a man with whom he has real friendship. He finishes this out by talking about, for God did not give us the spirit of fear. There's two ways you can understand that. Paul is either referencing our spirit that is not given to fear, or Paul is making a reference to the Holy Spirit so that God has given us the spirit or a spirit that works these things in us. I tend to understand this as God imparting the Holy Spirit simply because that upon our conversion, we are given the Holy Spirit, and it works things in us that are not natural. Fear is natural. Weakness is natural. Love and self-control are not natural. Those don't come naturally to us. Those have to be worked in us by the Spirit. So I take the Spirit here as the Holy Spirit, and that word fear there is not the Greek word you'd expect. It's not the word phobos, where we get our word phobia from. It's a different word that is unique to here, and the word actually means cowardice. So God has not given us a spirit of cowardice. Now, why is it unique here? Why would he mention that word here? Because he's already told Timothy, you have to fight your natural timidity. And here's what I'm telling you, Timothy. You know why you don't have to be timid? Because God has given you a spirit of boldness. A spirit that is not of cowardice, but is boldness to do the work. If you're in Christ this morning, despite what you think, God has given you, too, a spirit of boldness. Why? What, what breeds boldness? is walking in the truth. We're already told the Spirit guides us in all truth. And when we understand truth and we have truth, we might not be an evangelist, you might not be a teacher, you might not be a preacher, but you have the capacity to be bold because you have the Holy Spirit in you and because you know what truth is. So we have this boldness that He works in us. But I love the word here, but of power. That word power, we get our English word dynamite from. But of power. We get the Spirit's power in our weakness. We get His love against our selfishness. We get His discipline against our own lack of self-control. When we think about God's favorite starting point in humanity, it's human weakness. That's His favorite starting point. So he brings power to our weakness. He brings his love to conquer the natural love we have for self and self-pleasure. He brings his soberness, his discipline, his wisdom to combat the natural folly that we have in our hearts. Beloved, that's the spirit we need. And so when we think about this, God works in us that we might faithfully labor. What is the overarching goal of the pastoral epistles? Faithfulness. As we've continually seen in these letters, God's primary aim in His people is to produce a people who are faithful. Gifts and faith are never simply about monetary and personal gain. America has been real good at monetizing Christianity. And so much of it is not meant to be monetized. It's meant for the glory of God alone. Our gifts can have monetary and personal value, and sometimes they do, and that's great when they do. 
But their purpose is to support, encourage, and build the body of Christ. And so the faith and gifts that God gives are meant to help us love and glorify God and bless our neighbor. And we don't build community for the sake of community, and we don't labor for the sake of being busy. We build and labor because God has gifted and called us to be about the business of proclaiming His kingdom and doing that faithfully. So the gifts and the faith we have are meant to be expressed and given away. Expressed our faith, cling to our faith, but give it away to others. And that is the beauty of the Christian life. Please pray with me. Father, thank You for Your Word this morning and its power, its truth, its beauty, its richness, its depth. I pray this morning that as we as we go from here, that we're reminded of just how rich this truth is, that we, are, we don't see ourselves as, or with friendships being optional or our gifts, we will use them or not use them, or the faith that we live out and express is maybe not as important as it should be. Father, those things are lies. We need to see the beauty of covenant community, of friendship, of the gifts that we have and seeking to cultivate and use those gifts for growth in the kingdom of God. Father, we submit ourselves and our lives to you and ask that you would work in and through us. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.